Welcome to the latest episode of the Woke Antidote, a special podcast today, TB. We have our second guest on the pod. I'm very excited. Yeah, we're making history over here. So uh, I'm pumped for this episode. Uh, we have none other than one of our very good friends from the Canadian Bitcoiners, Joey. So super pumped to have him on. Uh, we have such a great episode on Doc for tonight. And I'm ready to rip it, boys. I love it. And to, to give Joey a introduction here, Canadian Bitcoiners podcast, um, myself and TB have been on that. I've been on that a few times giving financial takes and general society takes. And the name is Bitcoiners podcast, but Joey and his co-host Len and all the guests they have on, they do a great job of talking society, macroeconomics, how that all fits into Bitcoin and what that could potentially do for our society going forward and the takes that you have on Twitter, on the, the various spaces you're in. Um, you're just really the perfect guest, I think, for the episode that TV and I have been talking about, which is our culture and our society is in decay. Everyone's unhappy. And we felt like having another person to bounce some ideas off of and get some great insight would be perfect. So, Joey, really, really happy you're on the pod today. Boys, I'm happy to be here with you and uh, your listeners. There's a lot of stuff going on, man. And uh, I don't think we'll solve all the world's problems tonight, but there's some value to trading ideas with like-minded people to see where you come down and which ideas get the most traction in a conversation like this. So I'm looking forward to it, man. We don't get to talk enough about this stuff in our day-to-day life. Um, this is the platform for it. So yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, and I think you, you said it best talking about which ideas catch, and that's kind of what I wanted to start this off with, which is, you know, based on your podcast, based on your Twitter, you're in general agreement with, with us on this show that something, it's not right about current society. There's something off, the vibe's off, there's so many signs of this, enough that you recently started a thread on Twitter called Just Decay, where you keep track of this and you have various examples of the, the cultural and societal decay going on. So I think we can start broad here. What's the top or what's the top few reasons you feel like society is in this position right now? Call it cultural malaise, call it people being unhappy. What's what's the most important driver of this? Is Is it your opinion, the two of you, that cultural sort of there's there's been this kind of shift, I think, and I be, I want to know what you guys think because we all work in different um, industries silos. There's been a I think a shift in what is the acceptable level of competence in basically all professional and even social silos. You know, I think that's probably where I would start uh, if I look at you know, my friend group, I'm in sort of a middle millennial. I was born in 87 and I look at my friend group and I see a bunch of guys and girls who have no problem communicating with people of any age are sort of a mile wide and an inch deep in social situations, which is ideal, right? It's enough to have a conversation and, and, and make meaningful connections with people and learn more about them and have them learn more about you. But then if I look at the younger generation, let's say the, the kids who are late teens, early twenties, the zoomers, and whatever comes after them, these sort of really young, uh, raised on TikTok uh, kiddos, I see what I would call a concerning drop-off in expectation and competency socially. 
And I think that you're seeing the results of that in professional silos as well. And those things together lead to uh, a shift in the way people think about what's expected of them. What's expected of you in a, a scenario where you're uh, in job interview, what's expected of you in a scenario where you're trying to perform on an exam in a post-secondary setting or a secondary setting. And when, when those expectations change, uh, you get a divide between the sort of go-getters, the competent people, people who want to improve and people who don't. The problem I think is that that first group is shrinking <laughs> and the second group of people who are content to exist on this, uh, sort of plane of average uh, is continuing to grow. And, you know, as we've talked about before, we talked about it on the show and I've heard you guys discuss it as well. There's a kind of a problem in, in democracies when the largest group is sort of voting themselves superior in ways, right? Uh, we've seen it in things like social programming, um, the destruction of merit in education. And, uh, I think you're going to see it other places too. So, I think broadly speaking, that's where I would start is there's a lowering of expectations across society that just keeps getting worse because as more people fail to meet the standards of, of generations uh, before them, um, it becomes more and more widely accepted. And it's, it's not a, not a good slope to be sliding down. Yeah, Joey, I completely resonated with what you said. I, I actually never even thought about that professional angle that you just brought up but I think there's a lot of validity to that and you know for for those listening they know that I talk a lot about my experience working in tech and, and I see it day in and day out where it's like to your point it's that lowering of expectations um, it's the lowering of the quality of work where I, I see it in my profession where people they really you know they preoccupy themselves instead of bettering their craft they're more concerned about, you know, their unlimited vacation, all the snacks and, you know, swag that they're going to get at work. Um, you know, me on a hiring front, for example, I, you know, I've been mandated by upper management to focus on things that are less focused on the quality of work and more things that are just more superficial, things that don't really benefit, you know, the revenue generation of a business, the health of a business. It's all about these ancillary subjects that, have nothing to do with the role itself. And I, I, I find that people aren't really, you know, honing their craft. They're not in their profession to like, you know, really make a career out of it and become an expert in it. It's almost just kind of a, a means to an end. They're just trying to get money from this, you know, this role and be able to do things that just, you know, whatever, however they want to spend their money. But it's kind of like a, this, in this limbo state, there's kind of like not leading these fulfilling lives where they're, their jobs really become who they are and things that they're passionate about. I, I, I really do see that a lot. Um, so, yeah, I think that's like a really, really interesting uh, perspective that you bring. You know, I, I think professionally that, that does, you know, if you're, if you're not satisfied in what you do, um, that does lead a lot to depression. That does kind of cause a lot of confusion about what's your role in the world? What sort of contribution are you bringing to society um, if you're just kind of someone who's just clocking in and out and, uh, you, you know, you're just kind of half-assing things, I can see how that can get very confusing, how that can become kind of depressing. Um, so it, it may, on the surface, on, from an outsider's perspective, it may seem fun, like, oh, like, you know, working in tech, people don't really have to work that hard and they're not really held accountable when they're not, you know, put working nine, you know, nine to five days when they're kind of just 
you know, you know, going on Slack for a couple of hours, firing off a few emails and they, you know, they think that's a, a good days of work. I can see how over time that compounds on itself and it just leads to people just not feeling satisfied and just longing for more. And maybe they try to pursue, fill that void with other things that kind of creates a vicious cycle. Um, you know, again, that's just my perspective in tech, but um, I see this very, very often. So I'm really glad you brought that point up. Well, uh, you know, there's this idea that I've heard on a few different shows of it's actually become, it's actually become trendy, I think in the last like two or three months, maybe a little longer than that, but I've heard it a lot in the last two or three months, this idea of uh, surplus elites. And there, there's a, a whole, a whole group of professionals who are, you know, middle managers and stuff like that, who, you know, as we've seen in certain tech companies, Twitter, obviously a great example of this, you know, some of these quote unquote managers who manage a team of coders haven't actually done a pull request or written a line of code in, you know, God knows how long. And I think you see that in a lot of professions, honestly, guys. And, and, and the problem with that is that those, those people, like you mentioned, who send a few emails and, and schedule a few meetings, consider it a day's work there's a confusion there and I don't necessarily think it's their fault. I think that there's a, um, like I said earlier, a sort of more broad shift in expectations by the professional class, the laptop class that leads them to believe that being busy is the same as being productive. I would say that there's a pretty clear delineation between those two things. And as the economy starts to waver a little bit, and those jobs become less secure and the quote unquote value that those sort of coordinator type positions provide uh, drops off a little bit in terms of, you know, dollars on the bottom line, you're going to find that they're not that secure. And, and to your point about, you know, whether or not that's good for people in those positions that, you know, they enter into the kind of a depressed state potentially, you know, during a period of unemployment or underemployment or, uh, imposter syndrome or, or stuff like that stuff that people deal with all the time, by the way, it's not necessarily related just to this scenario, but you know, th these things cause problems that are wide ranging and have plenty of tentacles into other parts of your life, your finances. Um, you know, I'm sure tonight we'll talk about some of the substance abuse problems that have become very much mainstream over the last five years, uh, amplified by COVID in no uncertain terms. And, and you know, all these things combined, they, they lead to problems that not, aren't just affecting you day to day, week to week, but they're going to stretch for generations. The, the competency problem, I think, you know, we talked about professional and kind of personal in a social situation, but unfortunately, I think it's starting to become clear that it's extending to parenting. And uh, it's, it's, to me, you know, these are difficult holes to climb out of for a society. If 20% of the kids who are born these days are some combination of raised by incompetent parents or parents who are too busy to be around the house all the time and support their kids or parents who would prefer to throw an iPad in front of a crying kid instead of, you know, put a building block down for a, sort of a better tomorrow for the kid. Um, it, like I said, these are, these are very difficult holes to climb out of for a society. And if you look at uh, sort of the productive capacity of first world first world economies, Canada, the United States are great examples. Many European countries share this this same problem, and will share the same fate. Unfortunately, um, that they they <laughs> they need competency at a rate they've never needed it before. Um, you know, uh, SB, you could probably talk about this uh, given your background in finance, but this sort of uh, 
demographic bomb that's coming from most of the first world is going to basically require that kids born today and and you know in, in the next few years pick up the slack in manufacturing if we don't automate all that stuff uh, away how many kids do you know um in their sort of you know teenage years that are interested are interested in becoming i don't know um car manufacturing specialists or uh you know computer hardware specialists or it's very difficult because unfortunately in the TikTok era uh there's not too many day in the life of a uh, guy who you know puts rivets on car doors videos uh not a lot of doritos and sushi in that lifestyle as you can probably imagine so it doesn't really make for a good day in life video but this is where we're going to need support and without competent parenting without you know competent educators which is another thing that's you know near and dear to me um it's it's going to be tough there's there's room for hope of course and i'm sure we'll talk about it but uh there's problems that need to be solved first and the first step in solving those problems and any problem like this uh, is to speak honestly about them. And I think that there's a lack of that as well. Yeah, I, I, I think that was so well put, Joey. And I think you really perfectly tied up exactly what we were talking about with kind of the dilemma that we're seeing in the professional world. That's a symptom. The cause is, you know, I think absent or, you know, weak parenting, which I think is another great point that you brought up. We live in a society where it's the participation trophy uh, society where people are just, you know, they're just given credit for doing the bare minimum. And that's just showing up is rewarded in society when back in the day, you know, not to sound like you know uh, a boomer here, but, you know, back in the day, people were prided on, you know, grinding and not always winning, like failing and learning from those failures and becoming better for it. Whereas today they're not. And you could be, it could be that people are just, you know, trying to be more supportive these days. But I do think an aspect of it is lazy parenting, where it's much easier for a parent to tell their kids that they can do no wrong, that they can, that they're doing great versus taking the time to actually sit their child down and critically tell them what they're doing right and wrong and how they can become a better person or, you know, how they can become better in their sports um, that takes more emotion. That's more draining for a parent to do that. Um, fighting with your kid about it, trying to get them on the right track. It's much easier just to give them that award and tell them they're doing great. So I think, you know, tying it back to the professional world, I think we're seeing the byproduct of that type of parenting where, you know, I've noticed this, in, especially in tech, that there's a great deal, a great sense of entitlement, especially for the younger workers where they come in and they're demanding unlimited vacation. I, I've I've witnessed coworkers getting mad at our HR team publicly because the snacks aren't up to their standard, that the <laughs> snacks aren't healthy enough, um, that you know we don't go on enough trips or they don't give enough prizes to people. And I'm thinking like, I've never once when I was in my young 20s did I ever feel comfortable showing up to a new job fresh out of college, thinking you know I can just show up and just make all these demands and expect my employer to meet that. Um, that, that's just like such a wild concept to me, but, you know, I, I think, I think you're right. I think, I think parenting plays such a huge role in it and, and, and education as well, which, which we'll get into in a second here, but I think that's the ripple effect and, you know, it kind of, it has such long-term impacts as, as you just said. Well, and who's setting the expectations? I think that was a great way to think about it. The expectations are lower and it's, it's either, worse parents or absent parents, which is who's filling that void. It's the media. 
it's teachers influenced by this current culture and influenced by the media themselves. And what does the media want? Well, they're, they're being run for profit, selling you information and marketing. They're not looking out for your best interest. They want you hooked on the latest product. Um, they want you, they're, they're okay kind of saying, you should expect everything immediately, which, which TV, to your point, is, is what you're seeing in the tech world. If you don't get that promotion in six months, you're, you're moving on because you, you, didn't, uh, you didn't get what the media told you to expect to get. You didn't get that great New York City apartment in that Friends-esque show that you're watching. So God, I think that's, that's exactly, so true. The yeah. fucking shows that ruin it for oh my God, I didn't even yep. think about that. But you're so right. Yeah, it's the shows. It's the unrealistic expectations. And you know, I the, the parenting got me thinking about. I think Joey, you you listen to the Bill Simmons sometimes. And on a recent podcast, he was talking about how they had a whole section on, uh, section on social media saying that he hates TikTok. Right? He thinks it's a terrible app. Yet his daughter is posting TikToks publicly. She's under 18. He, he said on that podcast that Zoe was, quote, in a funk, but they got, her, they got her offline, they got her off Twitter, and she felt better after a while. But what does that say about Bill Simmons, a guy, he sold his company for $200 million, and even him as a parent can't really, doesn't feel like he can speak to his daughter and son and to get them off of these apps that are terrible for their mental health. So I totally agree with, bo with both of you guys. We, we have a parenting crisis. They're setting poor expectations. And unfortunately, what's happening is the influence that these younger people are getting, it's not from their parents that are looking out for them and have a long-term vision for their health and safety and their prosperity, but it's other, pe it's other interests out there in the media that's actually not looking out for their interests. And now we have a society that essentially this is the first generation that was kind of raised by the television yeah. and you know, look where it's gotten us at this point. Isn't it true that there's like a, for the, for the first time ever, this sort of, there's, there's an, there's a, <laughs> I, I am for sure going to get this term wrong, but I'm going to call it an inverse correlation between the ease associated with raising a kid, right? If you can't make ends meet, the state will help you and step in if you can't pay for daycare, don't worry. The state will take your kid uh, as early as two or three at some kindergarten or daycare. Um, if you can't pay for food, don't worry. The state will give your kid breakfast at school. There's never been a, a worse time for this inverse correlation between the ease with which you can raise a child and the difficulty you will have being a good parent. And, and those two things together are going to cause a mountain of problems. I'll give you an example from the education side. I don't know if you guys know this. In Ontario, we have a, a conservative premier, so basically, uh, you know, the equivalent of a governor for your American listeners, who wanted elementary school teachers to be able to pass a grade six math exam, a uh, competency exam, basically grade six level. And the teachers union here in Ontario, which to give you an idea of how strong and, and sort of, you know, widely uh, renowned this union is, there's an episode of Billions where Axelrod is courting the Ontario teachers union uh, as an investment partner in his for something his firm is doing. And uh, <laughs> the union put up this huge stink, did a multi-million dollar media campaign against this idea that we have to arbitrarily force teachers to qualify their, their talents in mathematics to a grade six level in order to teach things that aren't math related. To, if that's not a wake up call for people that you're sending your kids to a place where there's just a bunch of incompetent babysitters, 
all day. Uh, I don't know what is. And the problem is parents are at this point now where like they're too busy to care, too busy to know. And honestly, most of them are probably too dumb to understand. So like, mm -hmm. how, how do you get out of that? How do you get out of that? You can't, it's, it's very difficult. And so you're relying on these systems that you're, so, that are selling you a false bill of goods, right? This is where you go to teach your kids how to be an American, how to be a Canadian, whatever. And really what they're learning is all the stuff that has contributed to the downfall, uh, of, of the, of the, of not, I don't want to say the downfall of, of like the great nations, but certainly it is contributing to, a a, a change in the way these great nations are viewed abroad. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. And so I just think for parents and teachers to both be this incompetent publicly and also have the confidence that they're doing the right thing when they're clearly not, it, it's difficult to stomach, man. And uh, I, take it, I take it to heart because I went to teacher's college in America, actually. I went after university to uh, Buffalo, like a lot of my – peers here in Canada did because uh, over here there's a lot of rules about uh, volunteer hours and things like that that a lot of people don't meet uh, to get into the Canadian teachers colleges but you know you see it firsthand um, te the teachers college instructors over in Buffalo understood this they were I think afraid to say it but you know as we all do tiptoeing around kind of the honest opinions we have and this was for sure one of them and uh, at the time you're a little younger I think I was like 22 at the time you don't really understand why they're tiptoeing around it. And you think maybe it's a little bit improper and uh, you're not sure how they're allowed to express these things in the classroom coming out of a university, like you said, that's so heavily guarded in terms of uh, free speech and freedom of thought. But the older you get, um, the more you see the value in, in expressing those things honestly, especially to the next generation of educators. And it just doesn't seem like we've done it. And this is the result, man. This is what you get. Yeah, I, I think that's 100% right. And, and that's interesting that uh, I had no idea that uh, Canada had a similar issue with uh, teachers unions just wielding so much power. That's 100% the case here in America. Um, they literally are driving forces behind the, the uh, consequences of elections, like the out like election outcomes. Um, they wield so much power. Um, and, you know, we even saw during, you know, just a couple of years ago during during COVID when, you know, vaccines were in mass distribution and uh, all the science was pointing to that it was safe now to return back into public spaces. Um, they were still wielding so much power where they were keeping those classrooms shut that they didn't. Who is the woman who, who was doing that that um, public uh, public campaign? I forget her name now, but I know I, I know exactly the the kind of messaging. I don't remember her name, though. What was the union leader's name, I, yeah, Rand Weingarten. Rand yes. Randy. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who then later claimed that uh, she never wanted to shut down the schools, <laughs> but but that's such a good point because they were looking out solely for the teachers yep. and not the students. And so the question becomes: If you're a parent, do you why, why are you choosing to outsource the raising of your child to? these teachers that are not looking out for your children, you shouldn't be doing that. And I, I think even be, beyond what these teachers are looking out only for themselves, maybe one of the issues that we have in this society is, is what we're actually being taught in these schools. And I'm not talking about math and science. And now there's the, the common core math, which has you doing just insane ways to multiply two by four. I mean, some of the stuff you see out there is it, it's pretty much 
it has to be designed to make people not actually understand how to do math. It's wild. But what they're teaching these kids is so negative in terms of what it's what impact it's going to have on their psyche. I mean, first of all, if you want to do it by different races, you have them telling telling white kids that their ancestors were horrible people. You learn about all these travesties throughout history and these kids internalize that that's meaningful to them. But then on the other hand, they're telling the minority students that you can never make it because the deck stacked uh, the the deck is stacked against you. And no matter what you do, you're always going to be facing discrimination because this country uh, is is one of, you know, has this original sin and it, it, we're still uh, competing. We're still battling that. So that's a really negative message. I think other things they're teaching is is that we're in this capitalist society that only looks out for the top tier. And if you're not part of that, you're not going to be able to reach that. So there's no drive and no motivation given these kids to succeed. Um, there's also the climate change angle where they're basically telling these kids that you're going to be dead in a decade anyway. I mean, what did AOC say a couple of years ago that, you know, this is our generation's world war, that we have climate change <laughs> and the planet's going to be over with in, in 10 years. And then, and then finally, one of the big things that, that they're teaching is a, a victim mentality is actually a good thing to have. It's celebrated. That's, that's the thing you want to move forward in life. So I just think they're getting all of these terrible message, messages. And that's not to say that every teacher is bad, but we have to also look at what kind of people are going into these professions. Um, is, is that skewed poorly as well, where we're not having the best people there and they have a worldview themselves, which they want to impart on the younger kids. And so you're left with, with the situation of we're raising this generation of people, which to your point, Joey, they're not that impressive right now, and it's probably going to get worse, sadly. I feel like this is a get-off-my-lawn moment a little bit from the three of us, and we're not that old, but <laughs> it doesn't feel like that sometimes. Like It feels like I'm, yeah, I'm sort of like yelling at clouds, right, like that Simpsons thing. <laughs> I, 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 but I do believe it. There's been like a shift, probably the same way my dad believed that about me, and maybe still does his dad before him. But like the, the, but it's true though. Like this, there's clearly a problem here, and you know, like getting into stuff about uh, minorities and and privilege and things like that. These are dicey, dicey subjects. And the the thing I'll just say, it can it can be dicey to talk about, but okay it's not to say that there wasn't ever roadblocks, institutional, you know, race, race-based roadblocks. Of course there was. Mm -hmm. If, if they still exist today. Okay. And I don't know if they do or not. I'll just note here that it's, it's not a reason to discard your natural gifts as someone who's not part of a minority community. It's not a reason to waste your God-given talents as someone who's not part of a minority community. That's not the answer. The answer is to build up, those people who need help if they need it. But, but this idea that we have to, um, you know, like, like take away merit based, uh, schooling or merit based, um, you know, programming for admissions in certain post-secondary institutions, you know, famously, I think you get, you guys are maybe going to repeal 
affirmative action this year or next, yeah. Yeah. you know, like that's, that's big. And, and there's going to be a lot of people who are upset about that. But I think the, the answer is not to be upset. The answer is to say, this clearly wasn't working anyways, because, you know, in the best, in, in sort of the most generous interpretation from the point of view of someone who, um, you know, ha- makes a career out of victim building um, and, and victim mentality, the, the most generous interpretation of something like affirmative action is that it's plain not working. If if still we need a million full-time people working on this cause, then affirmative action wasn't the answer and isn't the answer. And so the the, the rational response is to say, well, what is then? How, what do we do next? Is the 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 I think the thinking man's response to this is we got to change something at the core, the base of that sort of hierarchy, right? Is it parenting? Is it uh, is it the, is it cultural problems? Is it social media? Are kids on phones too young? Is it whatever? You brought up Simmons earlier, um, SB, and I I just think like you know th- there's a lot of kids who are doing stuff they shouldn't be doing on social media, and social media is a haven for people who will take advantage of those kids in ways that are too heinous to describe on public air. And, and all this stuff is just, it's very difficult. And there's probably here too, and this is not my thought, it's for sure something I've heard a bunch of times from other people, but you know, as a species, how, how are we supposed to match with our sort of own evolutionary capabilities, the evolutionary capabilities of technology? Think about how much your life has changed even in the last five years, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, podcasts, there's stuff going into my ear or into my eyes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I carefully curate and still I have problems with funks and things, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting too down. It's too much doom scrolling. Like I was saying to you guys earlier, it's like, you know, difficult for me at 35 to do that. And I feel like I grew up in a time where I could at least develop some sense of what's going on around me and how to counteract some of these tendencies to doom scroll and, and find yourself in the, the algorithmic, uh, you know, death loop. But if you're 10, 11 and you don't have any, you know, any baseline to draw on from before you had a phone and a YouTube page and a podcast and everything, how the fuck are you going to know that all this stuff is dragging you down? How are you going to know that things have changed? How are you going to know that what you're experiencing isn't the default, the default human experience? It's, It's not the, it's not the, most ideal human experience it's so hard man and there's just no there's no rules there's no rules around this stuff yeah a hundred percent um i want to circle back on what you were talking about with um you know the lowering of expectations in in the classroom and in, in education as a whole um there's a term i really like that i, I think is, is is spot on it's called the soft bigotry of low expectations um, it's, you know, I can't think of anything more insulting than when someone is told, we expect less of you because of the color of this, of your skin or your ethnicity. And, and yeah. me as someone who is Hispanic, I, this is something I feel very passionate about because, you know, I come from ancestors who entered this country, not knowing the English language and had to teach it themselves and went from, from nothing to becoming highly successful in America and never once asked for any handouts. They really pursued the American dream and they accomplished it. And they are very proud of that. Um, and they've always said that, that they never ask for things to be given to them. If you want something in this world, you take it, you earn it. And I, I, I think that in, in today's day and age, when you expect so little of people and you tell them that we're gonna give you a handicap, 
I, I, I can't think of anything more racist than that, and personally. And then I think there's nothing more paralyzing um, to, to teach kids that you lack agency in your life, that because you are within certain spheres, that you are completely helpless behind some malevolent hand uh, that is dictating how your life will pan out, um, that you cannot control your destiny, uh, that no matter how hard you try, you cannot pick yourself back up. Um, that, 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 that's such a terrible message to teach kids. And I think that's 100% you know, some of the messaging that is going on in the classroom, unfortunately. Um, and it's for, you know, for purposes that may be with the intention of you know, trying to be good and supportive. But um, you know, I, I do think it's very, very much politically driven. You know, we, we see all, uh, constant examples of teachers who, um, you know, I, I saw this on the news the other day where they were saying that parents don't have masters in education. So who are parents to have a say in what their, their kids study? <laughs> yeah. And it comes to the point where teachers believe that they own your kids, that they that they they have more rights to educate your children than you as parents. And I think that's that destruction of the nuclear family, that destruction you know, of, of, of that in society. That is what causes a lot of malaise in society. That causes a lot of confusion. Um, and, and I really think, too, you know, kind of tying this all together, you know, kids really thrive in a structure system. They need rules. They need to be told what's right and wrong. That's how they learn. And when you tell kids that you can be whatever you want to be, that there are no consequences for your actions, that everything you need to do is great, it actually causes more confusion. And that's what makes them upset. That's what makes them depressed because they find themselves kind of just like in this limbo state, not really sure where they fit in the world. Um, you know, I, I think that's why you see such spikes in kids who are depressed. That's why you see spikes in, in kids who don't know how to identify themselves. And that's a, another very dicey subject that I'll just, you know, you know, we can get into another episode about that. But <laughs> I think I think that's why you see those stats skyrocketing because they're not given structure. And when you when you tell kids that they can be anything, that ends up being very paralyzing. Yeah, I'll, I'll add one thing here that it's not just in schools and, you know, on, on the grounds of certain uh, demographic groups, socioeconomic groups or race or whatever, where you see these sorts of, um, where you see these sorts of problems and the other group you see it in is in drug users. You know, the, this idea that you're addicted and you need the state's help to get yourself back on your feet is, it's plain wrong, man. Like I, I work with a vulnerable group. Like I'm on a board here in Ontario for a nonprofit that deals with addiction services. And like the first thing we tell guys after we establish, you know, a schedule and a set of rules and, and get them support from other men who are going through the same thing. The next thing we tell them is like, this is, it's all on you. We give you the tools, but you got to do it. And before uh, I know SB, you're probably dying to get in on this. Cause this is like uh, something you and I've talked about a bunch, but that I'll just add that in terms of, you know, experimentation, think, think about this. Okay. I, I think a lot about the demographics of the United States and Canada as far as the sort of low birth rates. And, you know, people are not having kids for a lot of reasons. It's difficult to court a partner. It's never been more risky to uh, flirt with someone, for example. Um, and again, like we can talk about that if you want. But the, the thing about having those low birth rates is that you're going to have now basically a sort of a small group comparatively forced to support entitlements in Canada, the United States, and probably Europe. 
Now, I don't know what the United States is like, but there's a lot of kids here who are taking a lot of uppers from the time they're like six, seven years old. Stuff like in, you know, Ritalin and other ADHD drugs, because the diagnosis threshold for those disorders is so low now. You know, there's never been a generation of kids who started taking <laughs> sort of low, low dose speed at seven. Uh, you know, uh, taking it all the way till 30 or 35, how, how are those kids going to look and function? How are they going to be as fathers and mentors and neighbors and community pillars? It, it, this stuff, you know, there's a lot of unknowns coming down the pipe for a lot of different reasons, but I think this is one that's really flown under the radar and it may be because there's, you know, incredible PR dollars going into making sure it stays under the radar from, from pharma companies. But this idea that these drugs are not going to cause problems and after 25 years of use, I, I think is uh, naive. And it's an, another thing that I'm worried about, that there's just a lot of kids who are hooked on these things and adults as well. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, more adults taking sort of uh, performance enhancing supplements, uh, you know, ADHD medication, maybe specifically to keep them sharp at work and outperform their colleagues. And all this is, you know, it's just another straw on the camel's back, right? And eventually, eventually it's gonna be one straw too many, I think. Yeah, oh, I think you're seeing it right now because I, you know, we were, we're a little bit younger than you, but I certainly remember kids that had the ADHD medication at seven, eight years old. And, you know, it's tough. It's tough for a kid, especially a boy, that's seven years old to be told to sit still in a classroom from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. every day. That's tough. And that's that's really difficult when you have all female teachers as well. So you don't really have anyone to turn to and you're just a little kid. So you don't you don't know that there's really not something wrong with you. It's just that this isn't the way that you're going to be learning at that young of an age. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to transition a bit and the you know, like the TB, we, we had got, we had said on Twitter, we wanted to reach out and say, what mess, what topics do people want to talk about on the pod? And we had somebody message us and say, can you talk about men's, men's issues and how men are failing in society? And I think one, one example that is, is huge is that men are just completely failing at education. I don't know the exact stats, but it's something like 65% of the college graduates now are women. So that just opens up a Pandora's box of problems where men, if you know they're gonna be dropping out of society, it's gonna be a lot harder to find mates when there's that huge gap between the sexes in terms of education because who wants to marry down in education? You don't really wanna do that. You've got men who now are, they're out of the workforce. What are they, what are they really doing all day? then they find the drugs or if they have been on drugs before, uh, they're now abusing them even more. And then Joey, I, I, I looked at your decay thread before we talked and you had one on there that was, um, there's stats that men, they don't really have friends anymore. It just, an, yeah. it's an incredible statistic where so few men have very close friends and that, that statistic has been going down and down for the last several years. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, men are not a group that the media and the social scientists like to talk about as something that we need to solve. But the stats are now so bad that it, this actually is being talked about 
in what what you would typically call kind of liberal media, the, the, the fact that these men are, are really failing. And ultimately, if you have the men failing, then you have women failing and you have families failing and you then have society failing. Because if there's not men out there that are going to be attractive enough to, to be with women, whether that's because they don't have a high status job, they can't support a family, they don't have the education, as I was saying before, then you're going to have more and more women that aren't going to be able to find a partner. Then you're going to have no family or you're going to have single women potentially having having children. And then if they're working and supporting them, then you're just outsourcing the, the child being raised by the state and by the media, which we just talked about is is pretty terrible. So, yeah, I'm interested in your angle on why men specifically are in kind of deep trouble right now because ultimately you know i'm glad it's finally getting some discussion but it's really not a good trend and like a lot that we talk about tonight the the trend is getting worse there's a way there's probably two paths you can go down here right one will get you banned from all social media platforms immediately and the other is to frame it in a way that i think makes sense for everyone involved because the stakes are high I would say that men's issues are women's issues and women's issues are men's issues. Um, they, they are directly related. We are all the other party has in this world. Okay. We have one job on this earth. It is not to send emails and book meetings in outlook. It, you know, your, your biological imperative is one thing it is to reproduce It is to have a family. And I'm not saying that everyone has to have a family. There are going to be people who don't want a family. They prefer this, you know, single lifestyle, fine. It's fine with me. I don't care if you're a man or woman, doesn't matter. I'm, I'm happy to support you if that's what you want and you do it in a way that makes sense for you and you don't think you'd have the time or the commitment to have a family, have a husband, raise a child. That's a mature decision. It takes a mature person to make that decision, I think. But the thing I would caution against is, you know, this idea in, you mentioned the education thing, maybe we can start there. You know, with less men graduating from colleges, getting high status jobs, you have a couple of problems there. The first big one is that those men still want to participate in society. And so how do they do that in a environment where uh, I don't want to call them low status jobs, but they're certainly lower status than white collar jobs. Unfortunately, I, I don't believe that should be the case, but it is. Uh there's not a lot of opportunities because of automation and because of offshoring of these jobs. So short of moving to a third world country to work for a couple of pennies a day, you have a hard time finding a manufacturing job in America and in Canada, much more, much more difficult than you would have 30 years ago. That's not, that's problem. Number one is not a lot of opportunities for these people. Problem number two, you know, I think has to do with, with Pareto or Pareto, depending on how you like to pronounce that there's, there's a problem with the top 10% of, you know, romantic candidates uh, having their pick of the, you know, opposite gender vis-a-vis dating apps or, you know, additional travel or going to uh, music festivals or whatever. And the problem isn't that those people are enjoying the fruits of their labor, right? If you have good genetics, you spend a lot of time in the gym or you got a good job and you want to, you know, so your wild oats, as they say, go for it. But the thing is that, again, to get back to expectations, it changes the expectations for both groups. If you become one of these guys who does that, you may find it difficult to settle down. And if the best of the best of the male species is not settling down, 
then we're not getting the best of the best possible next generation. On the female side, uh, it sets an expectation that, you know, even if you're uh, at the top of the pack as a, as a female, you know, potential romantic partner for, for a man, uh, you're, you're going to wind up in a situation where you're constantly waiting for the next, you know, uh, King, King Chad or whatever the meme is to come along and sweep you off your feet. When the fact of the matter is probably that there's only going to be so many that come through and sweep you off your feet. Uh, you'll age out of the preferred demo, unfortunately. And, and then you lose the best of both genders. Right. And, and without that, you don't get the best possible offspring and the species suffers for that. And, Again, like it's it's impossible to stress enough the the eggshells that people feel like they have to walk on talking about these things. But I think th there's honest discussion needed about this this sort of dynamic. And you know, I, the more that we talk about it, I think the more you'll come to the understanding. Like I like I said earlier, that the problems that each gender has individually are really the problems of both genders this is a big deal man society doesn't work unless all you know all the participants are as successful as they can possibly be professionally socially romantically it's funny the the men having friends thing you know in in our little in our little um you know group chat and and other group chats that i'm in uh it doesn't take much for a bunch of guys to realize yeah these guys are all sort of marching under the same banner i can be friends with these guys if I, if I look at like other, um, like friends of my wife's, for example, maybe not friends of hers, but acquaintances of hers that she kind of hears of secondhand or third hand, the, the difference in the expectation among friends between the two genders is insane. Like I will literally be friends with anybody. There's that great meme of, uh, you know, girls, uh, what is it? The two like Stacy Wojaks or whatever saying, yeah, she's been my friend for 20 years, but I still don't trust her. And then there's, you know, two Chad Wojaks and the one guy's like, yeah, I just met you 10 minutes ago. Do you want to, uh, hold this ladder for me while I climb up, you know, a thousand feet and the guy's like, yeah, sure, brother. No problem. Like, absolutely. <laughs> like it's really, it's, it's, you know, I don't know if that's like an innate difference in the two genders, but clearly something is there and there's a need, uh, on the part of men to, to find strong men. It's funny. I, I talked to, uh, this guy, Chris Betcher a while ago. And he was on Why Are We Bullish, the, the BTC session show, one of the same nights I was. And he was running a men's support group. And I, I talked to him a little bit after. And he shared a lot of the same stories, man, that you guys are kind of talking about and I'm talking about. And I think a lot of guys struggle with. That people want to share their experiences with others who are having the same experiences and can help get through some of those hurdles and difficult times. And, you know, I talked to my wife about a lot of things. I, she's a great woman. I, I, you know, I love her with all my heart. But there are certain things I just cannot talk to her about, not because she won't listen, not because she won't understand, but because she hasn't had the same experience and will never have the same experience. And ultimately that's what I think men are looking for. And it's becoming more and more difficult to find that. Yeah. I, th that resonated so strongly with me, Joey, because, um, you know, SB and I are both like in our young thirties so we're a few years younger than you, but uh, we're at the stage in our life. where kind of, we're like at an inflection point right now. Like I see it, you know, I've had friends like male, like guy friends who will tell me that they're starting to feel the stress about still being single, that they're not in a relationship yet or, you know, that they're not engaged or married. And, you know, they feel like the clock is ticking like this is these are guys who are saying this. Usually it's the stereotype that's the women who are, you know, have the biological clock and <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. Not get, you know, married. But no, you know, guys are feeling that, too. Um, and then 
also in the inverse, I see, I personally, and I'm not trying, I don't want to paint in broad strokes because it's just my experience, but you know, girls that I'm very friendly with um, who I know that when they were younger, um, they thought, you know, their looks had more of a social currency, if you will. And they rejected a lot of guys. And now they're in a state where they're still single and they're, you know, coming to me, asking me for advice because it's like, oh, you know, I matched this guy in Hinge and, you know, he was just terrible. And I met him like there's a bit, great, a great degree of loneliness that's kind of coming from this um, where, you know, it's kind of like in your younger years, it's kind of like romanticized, you know, to be, as you said, sowing your seeds and, you know, having, having fun. But um, it's almost, you know, people kind of look down on you for um, wanting that, you know, a, a traditional relationship where you kind of have that mutual respect for one another. Um, and, you know, I, I think too, like, especially from like the, the man's perspective, like my, my, my guy friends reaching out to me to talk to me about this, even, even that's hard for them because they feel like, you know, they're talking to a married guy here. So they can't like really, even though I can kind of, you know, relate to them as another man, I can't totally speak to them at the same level. Like, you know, it's hard for them to find other people who can kind of connect on that, on that experience of being single and still trying to, to find someone out in the world when it, when it seems really hard to, um, that's, that's really, that's really, that's really tough. And then you made a, a comment earlier, which I, I think is so true that, in the, in the in society today, it's it's really hard to even just you know chat someone up without it being seen as being creepy or you know or things like that. Like you know, right now there's a viral TikTok trend of of girls like shaming guys for you know looking at them in the gym, and you know it, we've kind of created this society where a man who who you know that that's like a bio. I'm not saying men should be creepy, not at all. That's not what I'm excusing, but it's a biological instinct that people will notice an attractive person and it's you know that's that is like our reptilian brains in action and men are being told that you know they're being punished and being told they're weird and wrong for for doing that um and you know i think it's like all that messaging that they can't they can't do too much but if they don't do enough that they're going to be lonely so it's kind of like you're towing a very fine line um uh, and you know kind of like the pool starts to like really shrink on you I, you know, I really sympathize with that. It's got to be tough. Um, you know, it goes both ways too, by the way. Like I I don't think necessarily that it's just women who are experiencing the shrinking pool. I, you know, I, I, I can think of at least a few times when I knew of somebody or knew someone who, uh, had maybe a little too much fun as a younger guy and, you know, not only did the pool shrink, but at the same time when maybe the three of us were focusing on career or, you know, I met my wife pretty young. I was like 25 when we met her, 26 when we met, you know, that those are the years when if I hadn't met her, what would I have been doing? You know, would I have been partying every weekend? Would I have been uh, hanging out with the wrong crowd? You know, sort of chasing girls I meet at the bar like I was when I was 20 or 21, maybe. And so how, and so how do things turn out? You never know. The problem is that it's the 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 speed at which that lifestyle will accelerate and get away from you is unknown to you until it's too late, and you know that's that's the case for men and women. There's some you know unsavory um, unsavory truths about you know at what age should you meet somebody? At what age should you uh, find a partner that you stay with for life? I don't know, but I do know that I am. I do know that I didn't live with anybody. I lived with a girlfriend in university for like four months, but I never lived with anyone seriously until I moved in with my wife. 
And Same. so the habits, so yeah, so the habits I developed as a, as a cohabitation partner, I developed with her, we grew together. Uh, you know, when, when I eventually have a kid, you know, it'll be my first kid with my first wife, only wife. And so I'll grow and learn those habits together. If you go through, you know, into your mid thirties and you, you know, are constantly in different relationships, you never figure out how to get past six months or a year. And instead you just bail every time that the relationship gets difficult. Well, the, the pool is going to shrink for you too, Chad or Stacy. It doesn't matter which, which gender you are. Mm -hmm. You will find that more and more people are less forgiving of your little, uh, you know, what were cute quirks when you were 21 are annoying immaturities when you are 35. And it doesn't matter how attractive you are, how much money you make. Life is too short to spend with somebody who is uh, developmentally stunted because of poor decisions they made during their uh, 20s and 30s. And this causes the pool to shrink and more people to just say, ah, fuck it. You know, I'm going to go stag the rest of my life or I'm going to go uh, single the rest of my life. And if, you know, if, if I meet somebody great, if I don't, well, no problem. I'll just party in, uh, you know, Tokyo every New Year's Eve or whatever people do to, you know, get their rocks off. But ultimately, again, this, this is going to lead to problems in society. We, we need to have some cohesion between the genders. And, you know, I don't know that it's a crisis yet, but uh, it's definitely not in the place where it should be. And it's definitely, I think, sliding in the wrong direction. Yeah, well, well, this conversation we're having right now, this advice, whatever you want to call it, needs to be imparted to the younger generation, and it, and it is not being imparted. And now we get these in, incredible stats. You said arena crisis. I, I would say the the following stat is absolutely a crisis. That fifty seven percent of high school girls experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness over the past year, up from thirty six percent in twenty eleven. So 36% obviously is, is way too high. 57%, that is absolutely insane. And I, I do think a lot of it is social media. But what is social media really doing? It's these expectations that these young girls don't feel like they can live up to. And it is, yes, you have to find that perfect guy. So, yeah, the women that TB you're friends with, I think they probably were led at a much younger age to believe that perfect guy was going to come to them, and it didn't. It was false expectations. I think on the guy side, a lot of the times, we, we feel as though we have to kind of play the facade like everything's going great in our life. We're having, you know, if, if you're married, it, it's going fantastic. If you're single, you're having these one-night stands every weekend going out. And not a lot of this true conversation is going on. And I think that so much of that stems from this, this, this media expectation, whether it's um, advertising, advertisements, marketing, the TV shows that tells you you can pretty much have it all if you want to and you should have it all unless and if you don't, then you're behind everybody. It's sort of the same thing with Instagram, social media, TikTok. The life that everyone's presenting is so much better than what their actual life is because they're only giving the highlights. And so I think a lot of people can kind of internalize that and understand that, but you still feel the tings of that pressure that, oh no, I'm actually not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and I like talking about this too a lot because I think this is a huge issue. I think, I think porn is, is a massive issue for, um, sure. for men, but then also affecting women because it's, it's instant access Anytime men want it, 
And so they, they just get addicted completely. I mean, there's a lot of people that are addicted to it. And it, it, it totally removes the drive to meet women. Whereas from the women's perspective, you know, they're aware of it, whether they're addicted to or not. But it puts them into these unrealistic standards that they feel like they have to stoop to that level of depravity to make men feel like they um, – to make it feel like the, the men want them. And a lot of times men actually – like men don't want what's in those videos. They're just so used to it. And we're – you talked about the Riddler thing before about seven-year-olds getting this. 12-year-old boys are exposed to intense like mind-altering pornography at a very young age. This is a serious issue in my, in my, th- in my opinion. And then for me to kind of to sum the, to sum these thoughts all up, like I, I like talking a little bit more broader. And I feel like we we have the worst of both worlds, where we're in this incredibly sexualized society where you can't look you can't look for five minutes, five seconds without seeing sex, whether it's on yeah. Instagram, whether it's these entertainers on the TV shows, whether it's just a normal. You know, you flip on a, a news program and the woman's got a low cut top. So there, there's all that going on. It's very sexualized, but yet less and less people are having sex. And this is what this this big study showed as well, that the percentage of teenagers having sex is dropping significantly. I think uh, there's stats out there that show right around the time that Tinder was invented in the late 2000s, male virginity for like a certain age group, maybe like 18 to 30 went from like 10% and now is at 30% and growing. So so basically you, everywhere you turn is sex, but yet people aren't having it and they're not starting families. And so then it kind of goes to another broad conversation that we're having, which is now the state has power over you as the ultimate thing in, in your life and in society's life rather than the family. So yeah, I, I just think unfortunately we, we have the worst of it and – I, it's just hard to see it getting better anytime soon. Isn't pornography isn't pornography a discipline problem? It seems to me to be a discipline problem. Like you, you don't have the discipline as a twelve year old to understand that every time you you know spray into a tissue, you lose a bit of edge, you lose a bit of drive, you lose a bit of uh, you know charm. And as an eighteen or nineteen year old, you may not understand that either, but you start to have some natural inclination that the, you know, you weren't getting the sort of uh, desired effects. And the problem, like you mentioned, is that kids don't know how to handle this stuff, but it's everywhere. It is everywhere. And to your point about the sort of low cut top on the newscaster, I would take the, I would take the opposite point of view, but probably not the opposite final point or final destination in that the reason the reason that when a lot of people look at the newscaster with the low cut top or the or the newscaster who you know is maybe wearing a medium when he should be wearing a large shirt as well also a problem on tv <laughs> i see that in, i see that in the men as well uh, <laughs> you know like the, the problem is that everyone is so hypersexualized that the first place your mind goes is this person's trying to sell me sex and I don't know if that's the case, but we're definitely there as society. I don't hold it against anybody who looks at that and says, this is an attempt to, to take advantage of my you know, male gaze, female gaze to sell me something. I don't know if it's always the case, but clearly we're at a point where the assumption has to be that this is the sort of default starting point for, uh, for this kind of stuff in media. And it's bad, man. It's so bad. Sorry, TB. I didn't mean to cut you off there, buddy. 
Oh no, not not at all. Uh, I like I love hearing your perspective, especially as like another married man, because I'm complete agreement with you. I think this like really connects so well with like the, the first topic that we talked about. And I said how with, with children, the reason why there's a malaise in society is because they lack structure. But I think like we as a society, we also lack structure, adults as well. Uh, right now, society is telling us the number one pursuit, the number one goal in life is your individual self-gratification. And that's why your people turn to places like porn or, you know, one night stands like the hookup apps, uh, because, you know, you see that in, in the media, because that's what they're being told that that is the ultimate angle. Your individual satisfaction is number one. And that is so, so damaging. And, you know, Joey, I don't, you know, you're an, a Twitter friend of mine, but I've never met you in person. You are still a stranger as far as I'm concerned. But I think that like speaks volumes that, you know, I just learned on this podcast that you never lived with your wife uh, before you were married. And uh, this the same here. I, uh, I, li- I lived with her before I was married, but I never I haven't lived with anyone else. Like, I, I'm yeah, not just like yeah. cohabitating with women that I date for a year. Right. Like, it's not right. it's not it's not it's not a, it, you, it cannot become a habit to live with everyone and take away, you know, what I view. And it sounds like maybe what you view, too, as what, what should be like. You know, it's it's a step before your last step with the woman, right? right? And, and so, like, you got to view it like that. It's got some some level of, uh, you know, some level of sacred protection. I think I don't know what it is, but I, I think it's there. I I couldn't agree more. And honestly, it wasn't until getting married that like I really got that because you're what well, you made a great point before. Like, you don't really develop as a person until like you don't really like learn yourself until you're sharing that with your soulmate. Like when you like learn to live with your wife and cohabitate. Like you did that with, with your wife, not just some person that was just like a brief blip in your memory. Like, I think that's such a powerful thing. And I, I have that mutual experience and, you know, I, many of my friends have, you know, cohabitated before they lived with their now wives for many years before they got married. And I'm not looking down on that. Like people, God bless people do whatever makes you happy, but I can say from someone who did it this way and similarly to you, there's a lot of merit in that. And I think, you know, not to like, you know, not trying to sound like a holy roller or anything like that. But I think that kind of goes to the whole thing of like, you know, we th- there needs to be like a structure in place that, you know, there there needs to be, you know, a right and a wrong, you know, a, a way like a, something to aspire to. And when when you kind of like are just pursuing your own self self gratification, you end up like hurting yourself because you end up feeling hollow and you start pursuing other avenues to fill that void. Like when you are hooking up with a stranger or you know you know living with all these different people you will turn to things like porn you will turn to things like drugs because you are trying to to fill that and you are you you need something that will temporarily you know hurt you know cure that sting something that will make you feel complete for such a for a brief moment in time but it kind of creates that vicious cycle and you know i i really do think that you know when we think about men's mental health all those factors are a hundred percent contributors to that. You know, no one can convince me that's not the case. Uh, you know, men are highly addicted to porn. Um, you know, they're not having as much sex as they used to. They're not, you know, the, the, the level of procreation is dropping dramatically. We're not even replacing you know, we're, we're not even above replacement levels yet. You know, we are, we are like really, you know, depreciating as, as, you know, a population wise and shout out Elon. <laughs> but it's a, it's a major, it's a major issue. Um, and I, I really do think, you know, obviously there's 
things that we talked about, you know, things that are unfair to men, but I also think there are things that men need to kind of hold themselves accountable to, you know, they can't just 100%. play the victim. They have, you know, for lack of a better term, man up and, you know, really make your place in society and like, you know, you know, earn, you know, become a better person, earn that. You have a conquering urge as a, as a guy, I think. And you see it in kids who are, you know, who want to be overtly competitive. You see it in kids who want to be, you know, hands-on physical with their friends. You see it in uh, adult males who have, you know, I, I said on Twitter the other day that there's not a single uh, male relationship that doesn't have some healthy element of competition. The best of friends are competitors against each other because they understand innately that it draws out the best in them. And, you know, fair competition is an important part of uh, male development. There's, there's a, 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 clear, a clear issue with the number of places that are available to men when they need to satisfy their conquering instinct without actually conquering anything, whether it's video games or pornography or dating apps. You know, dating apps really are incredible, right? It, it sort of takes away the hardest part of courtship, the, the, higher, the highest risk the worst feeling, the, you know, the, 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 the potential for rejection when you think all the stars are lining up, right. And, and you're approaching a, a woman or a woman is approaching a man, you know, it, the, 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 the fear of rejection is, I honestly think the most character building thing that you'll ever experience is getting rejected by somebody who you really thought you had a shot with. Like it, there's no replacement for that. And all these things are gone now, if you want it to be, and still you have this idea like, yeah, I, you know, especially for guys, it's, it's like this terrible disease. Like, yeah, I betted another girl. Yeah. I hooked up with another Tinder, uh, Tinder girl, like great, I guess. But did you really, did you really deserve it? Did you earn it? Did it make you feel good? Did it make her feel good? You know, like what, what did either of you get out of it except unrealistic expectations for the next time? The answer is nothing. And people can either admit it or not, but th that is very clearly the answer. Uh -huh. well, well, you kind of thought that's what you were supposed to do. Like, like TV said, the instant gratification, you're getting that and you're, you're kind of being taught that that is what I should be striving for in this society. And you're, you're not taught that that fulfilling option that is not at the cubicle, that, that is probably starting a family. And that has been what people have done for, for civilization because we, we wouldn't all be here if that drive wasn't there. And, and that conquering drive wasn't there. So that's what's so odd to me is that we, we aren't imparting this wisdom into the next generation. And that's just really sad. But kind of on that topic, I wanted to bring this Taylor Lorenz tweet into the mix because oh I just God. thought this was so representative of what, what negativity we're throwing into the next generation where – there's now a debate now going on about is it is it phones, is it social media, or is it something else that's causing kids to have these sky-high depressing rates because that 57% number for the women, it's high for men, that's circulating around and, and everybody has their opinion on it. So she tweeted out, why are kids depressed and must be their phones? But people never mention the fact we're living in a late-stage capitalist hellscape during an ongoing deadly pandemic with record wealth inequality, zero social safety net job security as climate change cooks the world. Not to be a doomer, but you have to be delusional to look at life in our country right now and have any amount of hope or optimism. 
So relating that back to what we were just talking about, instant gratification, that sounds much more appealing to people than doing the hard work and having a family and having a long-term view because why have a family now and why raise kids if climate change is going to cook the world anyway? But also this, this sort of late-stage capitalist hellscape that she's talking about, this is a, this is a huge issue of people unfortunately not – not thinking they can make it in life and then almost kind of giving up, I think, where, you know, if they're not getting that promotion or they're not going to be able to stay home to raise their family, they're just saying, yeah, I don't I don't really even need to worry about that. I'm not going to do it. So that's such a negative on the society as a whole is that people are so stressed out about what's going on at work. And they're if they have a family, they're bringing that negativity into the family and they're probably ultimately not having the family. The zero social safety net job security, that's another risky thing too, where if people are switching jobs every six months, that's kind of like sleeping with someone new every weekend where there's no loyalty to the job and, and clearly companies themselves are not that loyal either. But if you, ha if you don't feel good at a job um, for a couple months and, and you're switching, that's sort of like, it's like the fear of rejection thing. Like that, that's, that's the equivalent of, swiping left and swiping right and saying, oh, this job didn't work out. I'm going to go to the next one. So we're kind of in this culture that rewards that behavior rather than I think our, our parents' generation, you know, people were staying with one company for the majority of their career and they were developing relationships and they were working through hard times. So the kids these days, they're, they're being told that the instant gratification is what you should strive for and they're not being told and they're not doing themselves the hard work from, you know, 10, 11, 12, and then they can't even function in society. They can't talk to people. They can't talk to adults. They're texting their friends. And we're in this environment where you, you have, there's a serious lack of reproduction that's going to go on and continue this country. I mean, Lorenz is pretty jokes, right? She she propagates all the stuff that she claims is causing, you know, kids to <laughs> feel hopeless as a as a career, she is is sort of a professional propagandist for all these different uh, you know doom scrolling favorites. I I don't this this woman's unbelievable to me. I didn't know much about her until like last year, but every time I see a tweet from her, it is dumber than the last. <laughs> this, this idea that like like kids like kids are of course of course it's not social media, of course it's not phones. Like Taylor, kids wouldn't be exposed. To the things that you're so afraid of if they weren't able to read your tweets on twitter and see your instagram posts she must realize that surely either that or her sort of low iq following is like you know just kind of clapping along and drooling on themselves and encouraging this kind of behavior i i honestly don't know she she writes for a major publication that she not is she with the times she's with the washington post oh my god yeah two birds of a feather there yep. I, like, I, I don't i don't know man like I, I look at this stuff and i think if you think that kids are not having problems with social media and phones and instead that it's, you know, this sort of other alarmist uh, stuff. And like, look, there's gonna be people listening to this and like, oh, these guys don't think uh, climate change is real. I never fucking said that. Okay. Neither right. did anyone else. The point is that if you keep telling kids that the world's going to end in 10 years, you may get a different response from a 10 year old than you get from a 30 year old. If you tell a kid at 10 years old that Santa isn't real, he may cry. That kid is not prepared to hear from you that the world is going to end in 10 years, even if you believe that. Okay. And it's not, not that hard to figure these things out. Okay. If the kid is still putting teeth under his or her pillow, you can't talk to the kid 
about existential problems that have to do with climate or poverty or drug use or introduce pornography. It's not that hard. She's she's so dumb. I can't believe how it worked up. I just got about that because I knew you were going to bring that up and I fucking can't stand Taylor Lorenz at all. Oh, join the club, brother. Uh, I cannot stand her either. Uh, like, SB can vouch. Like, whenever we talk about her, it, like, sets me off. I'm sure, Joey, you've probably heard plenty of rants. How, is Taylor Lorenz, <laughs> is she 25 or 55? This is another I, question I have. Yeah. I don't know. There's no in between. She's one of the two. Uh, she's older than expected, actually. I think she's something like 40. Okay. Okay. She is no, She is the worst. Um, so she's like, um, again, this is not even like a COVID denial type of thing at all. But like, she will literally have you convinced if you step one inch out of your house, you're going to die from COVID. Like, she is just an absolute fear monger. But what pisses me the most off about her is what a hypocrite she is. She, there, she has made her career off of uh, just completely uh, taking people down on social media that she will. Um, what, what's the, I, what's that? Expression? She, she docks, she docks libs at TikTok, Doxing, right? Was yeah. that her? Yeah, exactly. So she, she does that to other people. She ruins their life. She gets people canceled. But when people did it back to her, when Linda TikTok was calling her out, she's on NBC crying, playing victim saying, Oh, poor me. It's really hard to be me. Like she is such a hypocrite. But I think she's like the perfect like caricature, like the perfect portrayal of just kind of where we are as a society. Like that type of mm-hmm. behavior is rewarded. Like that is what that is what our media has become. Where like that type of lack of journalistic integrity that is like completely supported these days. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Like she 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 pisses me off to no end. Well, I I want to bring a capitalist element into this as well because. This is a common theme that I'm seeing among people these days is that this is capitalism run amok and, you know, we, we absolutely have to fix this. And there, there's a lot of social – I mean there's self-described socialists and communists all over the place now. Um, and that speaks to the education uh, of the country as well. But I, I don't blame those people and, and here's why is because I think we're looking at the problem in a similar way, which is – the, the current economy as it functions just isn't working for the average person, for the average family. We used to be able we, – we lived in a society that you could have a family for a pretty cheap uh, amount of money. You could, ha- you could have a house uh, for not that much more than, than what you were uh, making annually, and that's not even close to what you can do now. So the education system and what the kids uh, see and hear is so bad that – what they think is that we actually need significantly more government intervention. We don't have enough. The problem is that we have a free markets of everything and they're not delivering. And so we need the government to take over everything. When in reality, of course, that's not at all what's happening. It's the exact opposite. The government's gotten their hands into every part of the economy where, you know, whether it's, uh, Healthcare now, whether it's this colleges, that's the stuff that, you know, we've all seen those inflation charts where everything that the government touches, the inflation's off the charts and the free market, um, it's actually deflation over the years. So this is where I want to I want to bring Bitcoin into the equation here, since you guys are the are from the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast and, and not necessarily Bitcoin itself, but kind of the ethos of a sound money in a capitalist society allowing the free market to 
figured out solutions for the people as opposed to this, uh, you know, Orwellian government spending trillions of dollars they don't have on resources like energy, um, renewable energy that doesn't work well, or resources like foreign policy around the world sending our our young men, men and women, that's a huge issue as well, sending them all around the world and having them come back and have PTSD. So I, I want to bring this into the conversation of, is this a possible, you know, it's obviously not a solution for everything, despite what some of the, the Bitcoiners say, Bitcoin fixes this for everything. But can, can we potentially try to structure and have a better economy, which could then maybe alleviate some stresses in family formation and kind of the rat race we have, and that can be a little bit of a solution to getting us off of this track that we're on. I, I mean, of course, there's one thing I'll add there as far as sending you know young men off to war. In, in the past, ruling the ruling class was was more judicious with their uh, warring tendencies because oftentimes, regardless of whether you were serf or noble, you were sending your kids off to war if a war happened. Now, obviously, that's not the case. I, I doubt very much that any of the ruling class in any first world country is sending their kids off to battle in any situation, um, let alone these sort of, uh, you know, I don't want to call the Russia-Ukraine conflict a luxury war, but certainly it's not a war that is, you know, a threat to U.S. hegemony or, or sort of, uh, you know, Western democratic norms. As far as the Bitcoin fit and the broader can we re reshape society, Man, you know, there's a lot of Citadel talk on Bitcoin Twitter about we got to come up with a way to preserve our wealth without taking on, you know, a second job. I think it's worth mentioning that basically the best case scenario for a a, a, a modern uh, middle class, upper middle class or above person is a full-time job for your earnings and a full-time job or paying someone uh, the equivalent of a full-time job to uh, manage your wealth into retirement so that after you give your entire life to the state, you can at least ride off to the sunset with a cane or a wheelchair uh, and not have to eat canned tuna every day or go to a food bank. Um, not exactly a great deal. In fact, I would say it's a raw deal. But as, as far as like reshaping society, yeah, man, I think that there's a place for government to help. But it, it's, it's clear to me that there's a lot of... Um, Maybe bloats the wrong word, guys, but like there, there's there are a lot of people who are dictating policy who have never had to experience the you know results of those policies, right? A lot of you know if we go back to education, the Department of Education in the states is you know often vilified on Twitter. You know I think probably correctly in more cases than not, but it's vilified because the people who are making the policies have never set foot in a classroom. Mm -hmm. I've never dealt with a problem child. Have never dealt with a uh, you know classroom of <laughs> of rowdy seven year olds. Like these are different. These are different environments than the academic uh, thought experiments that oftentimes yield policy that's incorrect. And then education is just one example. But if you look across other silos where government has a hand, you're going to see similar outcomes, and it's going to be for similar reasons. I'm not one of these Bitcoiners who thinks we need to abolish government. I think that's you know going down the wrong path here and I'll, I'll take a minute to uh to take a pointed shot at the bitcoiners who believe they could homestead and uh you know live on farms and live off the land as mountain men you definitely fucking can't most people don't even know how to like run a two-stroke motor myself included i can't fix anything 
uh, you know, like I'm not pretending that I could be one of these mountain men, but there are a lot of people on Bitcoin Twitter who do. There's a role for government. At the moment, I think the role has expanded too much. And the reason it's been allowed to expand too much, as we talked about before, you know, to kind of tie it back into where we started, uh, is because people expect support at every turn. They don't know how to handle road bumps or, uh, excuse me, speed bumps and, and sort of bumps in the road. Uh, they instead expect some kind of invisible hand to come down and give them a, you know, a stimmy check or give them a leg up on a job or help them with a problem they're having uh, at home or help them raise their family or, or whatever, right? Go send their kid to school. Th this can't be the case forever. Not because, you know, in principle, it doesn't make sense. I think it's a noble goal, but I think, you know, if you, even if you think the goals are noble, at the very least, you have to say that it hasn't scaled well. <laughs> like it's just, there's no doubt yeah. that that 300, you know, I think Canada's got like 39 million people. You guys are what, 350 or something 350, like that? Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, it, it clearly hasn't scaled. The results are getting worse, the more ways and the more places we try to apply this. Uh, you have to take the hint at some point. And so uh, I don't know what the next iteration of government's going to be like. I'm a big sovereign individual guy. I, I've read that book and I continue to go back to it. I look at the Twitter account, the post quotes from it sometimes as well and you know I, I look at that book and I, I what i see is a lot of stuff coming true that eventually people will leave for jurisdictions that are more friendly to their principles their values and you know maybe most importantly have the most or the least amount of friction for them to just live a life that's a little more you know a little more sovereign a little more respected by not only governments but by their peers their you know the sort of yeah. voting uh the, the voting equals that they have to deal with in society I, I don't think i don't think we're quite in a crisis there either yet but again you know if you if you ask me whether or not we we're sliding in the right direction or not i would say probably not yeah yeah i i, I couldn't agree more and i think as i've gotten older i've become more pessimistic about government's role in society that um you know you're, you're absolutely right like they when there's a challenge people look to government to bail them out to give them those stimmy checks to give them those welfare programs and i think it's all intentional unfortunately and i hate to be cynical about it but for the government really th those in those in government they live off of having a voting base that's entirely dependent on them if they were to get them pull them up by their bootstraps and actually get out of their situation, they would no longer need the aid of government and thus not need that, those who work in the government anymore. So it's almost to their benefit to keep those people down because then they will continuously have generations of people who will be completely reliant on them. So I, I, I'm witnessing that in the States right now. And I would say SB would 100% agree with me that we're kind of perpetuating this culture where people look to the government as the end-all be-all. That's why we see the destruction of the nuclear family. That's why, you know, we see the takeover that's happening in our education systems. All these things that we've been talking about, I think it's very much kind of with, with very much with a very duplicitous goal in mind, unfortunately, but it's, it's all about staying in power. And I, I think it, it's very important. I hate to sound conspiratorial, and I always preface that before a rant <laughs> on this podcast, but... Uh, I, I, you know, I, I hate to sound this way, but, you know, if you really had to think, you know, it's either there's only two theories that could kind of explain this downward trend that, you know, I think all Western society is going in. It's either gross negligence or intentional demolition. 
And the more that we see, you kind of start to think maybe it's more of the latter because it's hard to believe that we could be electing such grossly negligent people. And of course, we can point to many examples in recent history of grossly negligent politicians. Uh, I won't name names, but you can you can uh, probably have a good idea of what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, it's it, it definitely seems that it, you know, people, you know, the government wants to keep us in the state where government is our ultimate caretaker. Uh, and I think that's why all those lessons that we talked about in this episode, you know, taking personal accountability, um, you know, having a sense of structure and what's right and wrong, um, embracing the idea of a nuclear uh, family um, and, you know, a sense of like a moral compass. I think those are all ways you kind of escape that, that you can kind of, you know, transcend what wh- where society is pushing us or you can kind of, you know, find, you know, a sense of happiness and belonging in a very confusing world. Well, and then in, in terms of what we can do to help off offset and reverse this, I think one of the things that it's very simplistic is get people in power that actually care about the people that they're in power for. Because I don't think we have that right now in terms of our government, in terms of Canada's government. We need leaders to start speaking up about these key issues and elect them or have them in these key positions where they can discuss what's actually going on and more people can have conversations like we're having to actually try to solve some of these problems. Um, But, but Joe, we, we we did, we, we, we can't get you out of here before. If you can give us kind of a broad vibe check of what is going on in Canada, because you're giving us incredible insight here in uh, the United, uh, the United States, because we're all having, these same issues, but uh, we do want to hear specifically a little bit about uh, what's potentially going up uh, up north. If you had asked me this question last week, uh, I would have probably been a lot more positive. I, I was wearing shorts last week running uh, the escarpment stairs here in Hamilton. It was like 15 degrees. Today, it's like minus four, very windy. So I'm not in as good a mood. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 vibe, the vibe up here is, is an interesting one. Uh, I think there's there's a significant, I hate this term because it's like, it's almost like bohemian in nature to talk like this, but I don't think there's a better way to describe it. There's been a vibe shift, I think, in the last maybe two or three months where people are starting to realize, and it's not just people who do podcasts and are like, you know, take artists. I, I you know, I would count myself among those people sometimes. Um, there's, there's been a vibe shift from, you know, ruling elite even, and uh, the laptop class, and you know, I'll 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 get, I'll get into some details about that in a sec. But the vibe shift has been toward we have a problem brewing here, and not enough people seem to realize that the water is starting to get warm. The president of CIBC, who's the guy I'm sure you're familiar with, or at least an organization you're familiar with, put out a blog post. Is it the CIO or the president? I forget. Um, last week, and we talked about it last night a little bit, where he basically, you know, said what a lot of Canadians are thinking and starting to discuss openly, including, by the way, uh, recent immigrants to the country. So I don't want people to, you know, paint me in this, you know, whatever. You know, he's a anti-immigration guy. Not at all. My, you know, my grandparents are immigrants, like like many of you listening are, and maybe you guys have the same story. The this, the the blog post though goes into some detail about how. At the moment, we are creating what seems to be a generational crisis, uh, a a nation-defining crisis moment 
by bringing in the highest levels of immigration ever at a time when housing is the least affordable ever, jobs are the least available ever, and the productive economy, our GDP per capita specifically, has been basically steady for, uh, I don't know how long now, maybe, geez, seven years, eight years, something like that. So if if all this stuff is going on, the, the CIBC guy continues, you're you're inviting societal collapse because if you continue to let these problems manifest and and seed themselves, you will cause issues across many different silos of the economy, many different silos of society. And there's no coming back from some of these. There's evidence that these are problems that destroy nations in, in the past. And you know, the that's one example of the vibe shifting. You know, the other example I would point to is, uh, you know, if I look across uh, sort of the spectrum here in Canada, when it comes to stuff like crime, uh, stuff like, you know, police budgets being presented in Ontario, we recently had a lot of municipal elections for mayors. And, you know, that comes with new budgets for next fiscal year, which for a lot of municipalities is March 31st, uh, the end of our, our fiscal years. You know, I, I watched the Hamilton police budget present, uh, police chief present his budget about a month ago. And the questions he was taking about, you know, as he's as he's describing what he calls a declining cop to pop ratio, the city's population is growing at a rate that the police can't keep up with, basically. And, you know, we're sort of sliding into the bottom third of, of major cities in the country when it comes to how many police officers we can put on the street, especially in communities that really need that enforcement. Uh, he's being met with questions about uh, diversity hires from our city councillors. He's being met with questions about, well, why don't we send uh, social workers to uh, these these uh, crimes uh, and crisis moments instead? And he's trying to dance around these questions because he knows he's being televised and he knows you know he's going to create headaches for himself if he answers these questions a certain way. But the reason that he doesn't talk about social workers, uh, you know, to give you a sort of recent example, on the weekend in Milton, which is only about half an hour from where I live. There was a an armed robbery attempt, broad daylight. Three guys walked into a house in a well-to-do neighborhood, armed. Luckily, the homeowner was armed too. The homeowner killed one intruder. The other two guys were arrested. The homeowner today making headlines because he's charged with second-degree murder. Oh, my God. So you can imagine how the results and the comment section and the tweet replies have been to that story. Now, the question is, will it matter? I don't know. But I look around and I see a lot of people suddenly starting to wake up and going, hang on a minute. Am I part of the class of haves or am I part of the class of have nots? Because I think a lot of have nots or, you know, what I would call like maybe current middle, lower class, lower middle class people are going to find that they actually have a lot more than many of the people who are choosing politicians who are voting on policies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, they are, they are many smaller in number than those, than that second group. And that second group, you know, is going to vote themselves <laughs> a lot of their money. And the pinch is going to come from all directions for a lot of Canadians. Uh, it's going to be an interesting 10 years here. You know, my wife and I are lucky. We both have good jobs up here uh, that are not, you know, really in danger at all. It'd be, it'd have to be a real bad economic situation for, for our situation to change. But I tell her all the time that, uh, you know, there's many, many more people below us in terms of socioeconomic status who will vote to take our money any chance they get, who will vote to take 
the the wealth you've you've tried to accumulate any chance they get who will vote to make sure that your property taxes go up who will vote to make sure that you pay capital gains when you sell your primary residence all these things are going to come down the pipeline because you know it's not my quote but famously somebody much smarter than any of us said that democracy only really lasts until people realize they can vote themselves free money <laughs> that comes from someone else right <laughs> and uh, you know i think we're getting close to that point up here unfortunately yeah like that that situation you described but both of those situations one with that case with the you know the guy defending his own home and getting arrested and then you know the, the issue with taxes and whatnot that that honestly sounds identical to what's going on in america like I actually was surprised to hear that that's going on over there because I thought that was a, a uniquely American issue that unfortunately we had. So I'm sorry to hear that you, you're also dealing with that. Um, there's been many very similar cases about people defending their homes and getting into criminal trouble for, you know, taking, taking force to the, to protect their families. Um, and it, it seems like, you know, those who are you know running the show here in our country and in your country as well, it's almost like rewarding the bad behavior that they would rather, um, you know, be lenient with, with, you know, the villains, with the, with the criminals, than you know, uh, you know, you know, try to be too, uh, uh, you know, too judicial or, you know, uh, punitive against them and, and make a mistake. So it's like an overcompensation where, you know, the person who's just trying to live a, you know, a happy life and, and, you know, live happily with their families, they become more vulnerable as a result. And, now, I work in New York City. When I get off my bus every day at Port Authority, you know, it's, it's very reminiscent of, of San Francisco. I see people who are literally injecting themselves with heroin in broad daylight in front of cops and no one's stopping them. And it's, you know, it's disgusting. It's not safe. But yet we as a society, we as, you know, people who live in New York City continue to vote for that. And it just boggles my mind because I don't know how people can accept that. And, I, you know, the point you made about you, you, you just made about, you know, taxes and also you raised it before, too, about people who kind of want to live amongst like minded people. We very much are seeing a trend right now in the United States where blue states are becoming bluer and red states are becoming redder, where uh, it's just become so, you know, so divisive where people are now they can no longer live amongst each other with, you know, with these differences. And they're just kind of isolating themselves into communities where they, you know, agree with one another. And I think there's a lot of negative that, that goes on with that. You know, I don't think that's like, you know, I think the ultimately, I think that's like a bad trend, but it's understandable because to your point, why do you want to live somewhere that's going to take your money any chance that they can get something that you worked very hard for? Why would you want to give that away to people who want to use it on things that you don't agree with when you want to surround yourself in a society, you know, in a governorship that, they are, you know, like-minded or, you know, they, they will use your funds more wisely, things that you are aligned with. And, I, and we're, we're 100% seeing that trend in America. So um, it's interesting that, you know, there's a lot of similarities in, in Canada as well. Um, so, you know, definitely, you know, there, there's so much that we can talk about this, obviously, but, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll be back together talking more about it. But, uh, you know, I think uh, before we close out here, you know, obviously, you know, we, we can't let you off the hook without hearing one final uh, Bitcoin take here. You know, what's your what's your general outlook on kind of the state of Bitcoin? Um, you know, it's been going through a bit of a roller coaster these days. It's it's seen some better days uh, before. But um, wh where do you think it's headed? Do we, are we going to get back to the sixty nine thousand that we were before? Uh, what or what, what's your ultimate 
your ultimate outlook on Bitcoin as, as we move forward here? It's funny you asked me this on the day after we just did our show. I, I talked about this with Len for a bit last night. And I think the thing to keep in mind, everyone talks about price. Price, price measures what the people who own Bitcoin or who want to own Bitcoin are willing to pay for a coin. Great. That's a good measurement. That's good information. The thing that price doesn't measure, and I think the thing that we're going to find causes the next big uptick in price at some point in the next year or two, is it doesn't measure how many people understand Bitcoin has value but don't own any yet. There's almost no one left that thinks Bitcoin is going to zero or has zero value. There's almost no one left who doesn't understand that the US dollar hegemony is starting to show cracks. And there's almost no one left who doesn't understand that we are in kind of this late stage fiat era where politicians, you know, are maybe looting is too strong a word, but they sure are doing pretty well off the backs of uh, the voters and taxpayers, right? So I think this, that, that number is not represented in price. But it is represented in sentiment. And if I look around on Twitter, my personal life, my professional life, friends of mine, colleagues, whatever, what I see is people, what I see is people interested in Bitcoin even as the price is depressed, interested even as FTX is crashing, interested even as uh, you know, the economy is kind of hitting a recession. I think that's a signpost that price cannot account for. There's no real way to know how many of those people are only one more negative externality away from making their first purchase. How many of those people are only one negative externality away from putting 5% of their retirement savings, 5% of their uh, tax-free savings account up here in Canada or 401k equivalent in the States into Bitcoin. That number is probably huge and it's growing every day. Every time your president gets on TV and talks about another two billion to Ukraine, two billion here, two billion there. You know, you're at, you're at I think two hundred billion on the books now in oh, no. in, in in Ukrainian war costs. So you know, at what point uh, at what point do you say we gotta we gotta make a change here? We gotta think about another way to protect our wealth. I think Bitcoin is going to be that for a lot of people in the next cycle. And that number of people who is just one inch or one foot or, or one step away from making their first buy, I think is as big as it's ever been. Yeah, I, I totally hear you. And I, I think certainly you don't get it immediately. You don't, you don't feel that urge to really understand it and study it and dedicate a significant amount of, you know, whether it's your wealth at the time or you start doing a monthly buy or a weekly buy, you don't really get to that point until you've seen a lot. And, and yeah, to your point, I think is a great one that a lot of people potentially are on that precipice. But we, I, I think both TV and I were, were, were stoked about this episode. I thought this was fantastic. You brought so much great content, so many great thoughts. I think the listeners are going to love this. Um, we do have a big Canadian listener base as well. Probably thanks in large part to you, um, sharing the show as well as Len, your co-host, but huge, huge thanks for coming on and giving us the time. And I think this is absolutely going to be a special treat for the regular listeners of the show. 
hilarious that you guys thought we were going to cut this after an hour. I told myself at like seven thirty, like, yeah, you know what? I better have a coffee because I know once we start talking about this, we're going to get rolling downhill and we're going to try and solve all the world's problems. And here we are two hours later with no problem solved. And, uh, you know, it's all that tells me is we got to do it again, boys. It was a pleasure being on with you too. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm fired up, Joey. I might go hop on the Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> For context, uh, Joey was giving me shit for uh, for having a Peloton, but we'll, we'll, it's deserved. We'll... You, you you don't need a Peloton. Get a get a stationary bike. Put on a YouTube video of rolling mountains and save yourself that uh, whatever it is, you know, hundred bucks <laughs> a month. Put in Bitcoin instead. <laughs> there you go. Good financial advice. Well, Joey, you you have been such a great friend of the show, and this was awesome. Uh, I love that we can talk about this type of stuff. Um, you know, we can we talk about so many things. Talk about Bitcoin. We talk about the economy, but talking about society. I don't think many people are doing it and it's so important. So I'm, I'm really glad that we have a friend in you to, to talk about this with. And, you know, I can't wait to, to do this again. Absolutely. Gentlemen, my pleasure.